Chapter Thirteen, Section One of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Thirteen, Section One, Conclusions: The Individual and the National Purposes, Individual versus Collective Education. Hitherto we have been discussing the ways in which existing American economic and political methods and institutions should be modified in order to make towards the realization of the national democratic ideal. In course of this discussion, it has been taken for granted that the American people under competent and responsible leadership could deliberately plan a policy of individual and social improvement, and that with the means at their collective disposal they could make headway towards its realization. These means consisted, of course, precisely in their whole outfit of political, economic, and social institutions, and the implication has been, consequently, that human nature will be raised to a higher level by an improvement in institutions and laws. The majority of my readers will probably have thought many times that such an assumption, whatever its truth, has been overworked. Admitting that some institutions may be better than others, it must also be admitted that human nature is composed of most rebellious material, and that the extent to which it can be modified by social and political institutions of any kind is, at best, extremely small. Such critics may, consequently, have reached the conclusion that the proposed system of reconstruction, even if desirable, would not accomplish anything really effectual or decisive towards the fulfillment of the American national promise. It is no doubt true that out of the preceding chapters, Many sentences could be selected which apparently imply a credulous faith in the possibility of improving human nature by law. It is also true that I have not ventured more than to touch upon a possible institutional reformation, which, in so far as it was successful in its purpose, would improve human nature by the most effectual of all means, that is, by improving the methods whereby men and women are bred. But if I have erred in attaching or appearing to attach too much efficacy to legal and institutional reforms, the error or its appearance was scarcely separable from an analytic reconstruction of a sufficient democratic ideal. Democracy must stand or fall on a platform of possible human perfectibility. If human nature cannot be improved by institutions, democracy is at best a more than usually safe form of political organization and the only interesting inquiry about its future would be, how long will it continue to work? But if it is to work better as well as merely longer, it must have some leavening effect on human nature, and the sincere Democrat is obliged to assume the power of the leaven. For him the practical questions are, how can the improvement best be brought about, and how much may it amount to? As a matter of fact, Americans have always had the liveliest and completest faith in the process of individual and social improvement, and in accepting the assumption, I am merely adhering to the deepest and most influential of American traditions. The better American has continually been seeking to uplift himself, his neighbors, and his compatriots. But he has usually favored means of improvement very different from those suggested herein before. The real vehicle of improvement is education. It is by education that the American is trained for such democracy as he possesses, and it is by better education that he proposes to better his democracy. 
men are uplifted by education much more surely than they are by tinkering with laws and institutions because the work of education leavens into actual social substance laws and institutions because the work of education leavens the actual social substance it helps to give the individual himself those qualities without which no institutions however excellent are of any use and with which even bad institutions and laws can be made vehicles of grace the american faith in education has been characterized as a superstition and superstitious in some respects it unquestionably is but its superstitious tendency is not exhibited so much in respect to the ordinary process of primary secondary and higher education not even an american can overemphasize the importance of proper teaching during youth and the only wonder is that the money so freely lavished on it does not produce better results americans are superstitious in respect to education rather because of the social uplift which they expect to achieve by so-called educational means the credulity of the socialist in expecting to alter human nature by merely institutional and legal changes is at least equalled by the credulity of the good american in proposing to evangelize the individual by the reading of books and by the expenditure of money and words back of it all is the underlying assumption that the american nation by taking thought can add a cubit to its stature an absolute confidence in the power of the idea to create its own object and in the efficacy of good intentions will we make it hum by founding a new university in chicago is american art neglected and impoverished we will enrich it by organizing art departments in our colleges and popularize it by lectures with lantern slides and associations for the study of its history is new york city ugly perhaps but if we could only get the authorities to appropriate a few hundred millions for its beautification we could make it look a combination of athens florence and paris is it desirable for the american citizen to be something of a hero i will encourage heroes by establishing a fund whereby they shall be rewarded in cash war is hell is it i will work for the abolition of hell by calling a convention and passing a resolution denouncing its iniquities i will build at the hague a palace of peace which shall be a standing rebuke to the warlords of europe here in america some of us have more money than we need and more good will we will spend the money in order to establish the reign of the good the beautiful and the true this faith in a combination of good intentions organization words and money is not confined to women's clubs or to societies of amiable enthusiasts in the state of mind which it expresses can be detected the powerful influence which american women exert over american men but its guiding faith and illusion are shared by the most hard-headed and practical of americans the very men who have made their personal successes by a rigorous application of the rule that business is business the very men who in their own careers have exhibited a shrewd and vivid sense of the realities of politics and trade it is these men who have most faith in the practical moral and social power of the subsidized word the most real thing which they can carry over from the region of business into the region of moral and intellectual ideals is apparently their bank accounts the fruits of their hard work and their business ability are to be applied to the purpose of uplifting their fellow countrymen a certain number of figures written on a check and signed by a familiar name 
what may it not accomplish? Some years ago, at the opening exercises of the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh, Mr. Andrew Carnegie burst into an impassioned and mystical vision of the miraculously constitutive power of first mortgage steel bonds. From his point of view and from that of the average American, there is scarcely anything which the combination of abundant resources and good intentions may not accomplish. The tradition of seeking to cross the gulf between American practice and the American ideal, by means of education or the subsidized word, is not to be dismissed with a sneer. The gulf cannot be crossed without the assistance of some sort of educational discipline, and that discipline depends partly on a new exercise of the money power, now safely reposing in the strong boxes of professional millionaires. There need be no fundamental objection taken to the national faith in the power of good intentions and redistributed wealth. That faith is the immediate and necessary issue of the logic of our national moral situation. It should be, as it is, innocent and absolute. And if it does not remain innocent and absolute, the promise of American life can scarcely be fulfilled. A faith may, however, be innocent and absolute without being inexperienced and credulous. The American faith in education is by way of being credulous and superstitious, not because it seeks individual and social amelioration by what may be called an educational process, but because the proposed means of education are too conscious, too direct, and too superficial. Let it be admitted that in any one decade, the amount which can be accomplished towards individual and social amelioration by means of economic and political organization is comparatively small, but it is certainly as large as that which can be accomplished by subsidizing individual good intentions. Heroism is not to be encouraged by cash prizes any more than is genius, and a man's friends should not be obliged to prove that he is a hero in order that he may reap every appropriate reward. A hero officially conscious of his heroism is a mutilated hero. In the same way, art cannot become a power in a community unless many of its members are possessed of a native and innocent love of beautiful things, and the extent to which such a possession can be acquired by any one or two generations of traditionally inartistic people is extremely small. Its acquisition depends not so much upon direct conscious effort as upon the growing ability to discriminate between what is good and what is bad in their own native art. It is a matter of the training and appreciation of American artists rather than the cultivation of art. Illustrations to the same effect might be multiplied. The popular interest in the higher education has not served to make Americans attach much importance to the advice of the highly educated man. He is less of a practical power in the United States than he is in any European country, and this fact is in itself a sufficient commentary on the reality of the American faith in education. The fact is, of course, that the American tendency to disbelieve in the fulfillment of their national promise by means of politically, economically, and socially reconstructive work has forced them into the alternative of attaching excessive importance to subsidized good intentions. They want to be uplifted, and they want to uplift other people, but they will not use their social and political institutions for the purpose, because those institutions are assumed to be essentially satisfactory. The uplifting must be a matter of individual, or of unofficial associated effort, and the only available means are words and subsidies. There is, however, 
a sense in which it is really true that the American national promise can be fulfilled only by education, and this aspect of our desirable national education can, perhaps, best be understood by seeking its analogue in the training of the individual. An individual's education consists primarily in the discipline which he undergoes, to fit him both for fruitful association with his fellows and for his own special work. Important as both the liberal and the technical aspect of this preliminary training is, it constitutes merely the beginning of a man's education. Its object is or should be to prepare him both in his will and in his intelligence, to make a thoroughly illuminating use of his experience in life. His experience, as a man of business, a husband, a father, a citizen, a friend, has been made real to him, not merely by the zest with which he has sought it and the sincerity with which he has accepted it, but by the disinterested intelligence which he has brought to its understanding. An educational discipline which has contributed in that way to the reality of a man's experience has done as much for him as education can do. And an educational discipline which has failed to make any such contribution has failed of its essential purpose. The experience of other people acquired at second hand has little value, except, perhaps, as a means of livelihood, unless it really illuminates a man's personal experience. Usually a man's ability to profit by his own personal experience depends upon the sincerity and the intelligence which he brings to his own particular occupation. The rule is not universal, because some men are, of course, born with much higher intellectual gifts than others and to such men may be given an insight which has little foundation in any genuine personal experience. It remains true, none the less, for the great majority of men, that they gather an edifying understanding of men and things, just in so far as they patiently and resolutely stick to the performance of some special and, for the most part, congenial task. Their education in life must be grounded in the persistent attempt to realize in action some kind of purpose, a purpose usually connected with the occupation whereby they live. In the pursuit of that purpose they will be continually making experiments, opening up new lines of work, establishing new relations with other men, and taking more or less serious risks. Each of these experiments offers them an opportunity both for personal discipline and for increasing personal insight. If a man is capable of becoming wise, he will gradually be able to infer from this increasing mass of personal experience the extent to which or the conditions under which he is capable of realizing his purpose. And his insight into the particular realities of his own life will bring with it some kind of a general philosophy, some sort of a disposition and method of appraisal of men, their actions, and their surroundings. Wherever a man reaches such a level of intelligence, he will be an educated man, even though his particular job has been that of a mechanic. On the other hand, a man who fails to make his particular task in life the substantial support of a genuine experience remains essentially an unenlightened man. National education in its deeper aspect does not differ from individual education. Its efficiency ultimately depends upon the ability of the national consciousness to draw illuminating inferences from the course of the national experience and its power to draw such inferences must depend upon the persistent and disinterested sincerity with which the attempt is made to realize the national purpose, the democratic ideal of individual and social improvement. So far as Americans are true to that purpose, 
all the different aspects of their national experience will assume meaning and momentum while in so far as they are false thereto no amount of education will ever be really edifying the fundamental process of american education consists and must continue to consist precisely in the risks and experiments which the american nation will make in the service of its national ideal if the american people balk at the sacrifices demanded by their experiments or if they attach finality to any particular experiment in the distribution of political economic and social power they will remain morally and intellectually at the bottom of a well out of which they will never be uplifted by the most extravagant subsidizing of good intentions and noble words the sort of institutional and economic reorganization suggested in the preceding chapters is not consequently to be conceived merely as a more or less dubious proposal to improve human nature by laws it is to be conceived as possibly the next step in the realization of a necessary collective purpose its deeper significance does not consist in the results which it may accomplish by way of immediate improvement such results may be worth having but at best they will create almost as many difficulties as they remove far more important than any practical benefits would be the indication it afforded of national good faith it would mean that the american nation was beginning to educate itself up to its own necessary standards it would imply a popular realization that our first experiment in democratic political and economic organization was founded partly on temporary conditions and partly on erroneous theories a new experiment must consequently be made and the great value of this new experiment would derive from the implied intellectual and moral emancipation its trial would demand both the sacrifice of many cherished interests habits and traditions for the sake of remaining true to a more fundamental responsibility and a much larger infusion of disinterested motives into the economic and political system thus the sincere definite decision that the experiment was necessary would probably do more for american moral and social amelioration than would the specific measures actually adopted and tried public opinion can never be brought to approve any effectual measures unless it is converted to a constructive and consequently to a really educational theory of democracy back of the problem of educating the individual lies the problem of collective education on the one hand if the nation is rendered incapable of understanding its own experience by the habit of dealing insincerely with its national purpose the individual just in so far as he himself has become highly educated tends to be divided from his country and his fellow countrymen on the other hand just in so far as a people is sincerely seeking the fulfillment of its national promise individuals of all kinds will find their most edifying individual opportunities in serving their country in aiding the accomplishment of the collective purpose by means of increasingly constructive experiments they will be increasing the scope and power of their own individual action the opportunities which during the past few years the reformers have enjoyed to make their personal lives more interesting would be nothing compared to the opportunities for all sorts of stirring and responsible work which would be demanded of individuals under the proposed plan of political and economic reorganization the american nation would be more disinterestedly and sincerely fulfilling its collective purpose partly because its more distinguished individuals had been called upon to place at the service of their country a higher degree of energy ability and unselfish devotion if a nation that is 
is recreant to its deeper purpose. Individuals, so far as they are well educated, are educated away from the prevailing national habits and traditions. Whereas when a nation is sincerely attempting to meet its collective responsibility, the better individuals are inevitably educated into active participation in the collective task. The reader may now be prepared to understand why the American faith in education has the appearance of being credulous and superstitious. The good average American usually wishes to accomplish exclusively by individual education, a result which must be partly accomplished by national education. The nation, like the individual, must go to school, and the national school is not a lecture hall or a library. Its schooling consists chiefly in experimental collective action, aimed at the realization of the collective purpose. If the action is not aimed at the collective purpose, a nation will learn little even from its successes. If its action is aimed at the collective purpose, it may learn much even from its mistakes. No process of merely individual education can accomplish the work of collective education, because the nation is so much more than a group of individuals. Individuals can be uplifted without uplifting the nation, because the nation has an individuality of its own, which cannot be increased without the consciousness of collective responsibilities and the collective official attempt to redeem them. The processes of national and individual education should, of course, parallel and supplement each other. The individual can do much to aid national education by the single-minded and intelligent realization of his own specific purposes, but all individual successes will have little more than an individual interest, unless they frequently contribute to the work of national construction. The nation can do much to aid individual education, but the best aid within its power is to offer to the individual a really formative and inspiring opportunity for public service. The whole round of superficial educational machinery, books, subsidies, resolutions, lectures, congresses, may be of the highest value, provided they are used to digest and popularize the results of a genuine individual and national educational experience. But when they are used, as so often at present, merely as a substitute for well-purposed individual and national action, they are precisely equivalent to an attempt to fly in a vacuum. That the direct practical value of a reform movement may be equaled or surpassed by its indirect educational value is a sufficiently familiar idea, an idea admirably expressed ten years ago by Mr. John J. Chapman in the chapter on education in his Causes and Consequences. But the idea in its familiar form is vitiated, because the educational effect of reform is usually conceived as exclusively individual. The effect must, indeed, be considered wholly as an individual matter, just so long as reform is interpreted merely as a process of purification. From that point of view, the collective purpose has already been fulfilled as far as it can be fulfilled by collective organization, and the only remaining method of social amelioration is that of the self-improvement of its constituent members. As President Nicholas Murray Butler of Columbia says, in his True or False Democracy, quote, we must not lose sight of the fact that the corporate or collective responsibility, which it, socialism, would substitute for individual initiative is only such corporate or collective responsibility as a group of these very same individuals could exercise. Therefore, socialism is primarily an attempt to overcome man's individual imperfections 
by adding them together, in the hope that they will cancel each other. End quote. But what is all organization but an attempt, not to overcome man's individual imperfections by adding them together, so much as to make use of many men's varying individual abilities, by giving each a sufficient sphere of exercise? While all men are imperfect, they are not all imperfect to the same extent. Some have more courage, more ability, more insight, and more training than others, and an efficient organization can accomplish more than can a mere collection of individuals, precisely because it may represent a standard of performance far above that of the average individual. Its merit is simply that of putting the collective power of the group at the service of its ablest members, and the ablest members of the group will never attain to an individual responsibility commensurate with their powers until they are enabled to work efficiently towards the redemption of the collective responsibility. The nation gives individuality an increased scope and meaning by offering individuals a chance for effective service, such as they could never attain under a system of collective irresponsibility. Thus, under a system of collective responsibility, the process of social improvement is absolutely identified with that of individual improvement. The antithesis is not between nationalism and individualism, but between an individualism which is indiscriminate and an individualism which is selective. End of chapter 13, section 1